Will you stand with me as we come now to the book of John? You'll find it on page 900 in the church Bibles. It is the Last Supper. Jesus has uh, just washed his disciples' feet. We saw last week the remarkable story of how he did so and how that encouraged us to both receive his ministry to us, to wash our feet, to cleanse us, and then also to, to serve others. And now we're still around this table together as we come to this passage this morning, but there's a different question that it poses to us. What happens if you or your ministry, your serving, is rejected, even betrayed. John chapter 13, and we're looking this morning from verse 21 to verse 30. Let's hear God's word. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. This is God's word. Amen. Imagine you are sitting in a restaurant, perhaps like Panera Bread or something like that, or a coffee shop, and you're there with a group of friends, and you're just talking together, you're having a good time together, you're laughing, there's that sort of easy atmosphere that comes with people who know each other and trust each other, real friendship. And in that context, you share some intimate, personal details about your life. Why not? You're among friends. This is a safe place where you can share what's really going on. Everyone listens carefully as you, as you talk. And then the topic of conversation changes. You go home. You think nothing more of it. Next day, you discover that those intimate, personal details that you shared in that context of confidentiality and friendship have now been broadcast to the world on Facebook or Instagram by one of your so-called friends. Betrayal. 
It's a very real possibility, isn't it? Even among friends, even among Christian friends. It it happened to Jesus. It happened even among his disciples at supper, at the Last Supper, at at communion among the 12 apostles. One was a Judas. What do you do then when someone betrays you? Listen this morning to the story here of how Jesus' betrayal can release you from your betrayal. The story first first focuses on Jesus and then turns its attention to Judas and then ends with this night. First Jesus, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So after saying these things, meaning after making his last appeal to Judas to receive him, Jesus, we're told, was troubled in his spirit. He's, he's troubled because he says, one of you will betray me. In other words, Jesus is experiencing this devastating emotion that, that comes when someone you love and trust betrays that love and trust. It's a deep wound. And we see here the real humanity of Jesus, and it's been explained to us and expressed to us by John. Jesus was troubled in spirit. You know, I think one of the unintended consequences of much well-meaning evangelical piety is that we are moved from the spiritual medicine cabinet of the Christian, the remedy of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was a man. In fact, strangely enough to think about, but still true, he is a man. He's not partly a man. He's not partially a man. He is completely and thoroughly human. He is God incarnate. That is, he is fully God and also fully man. We rightly assert the divinity of Jesus, for that is the doctrine that our culture resists. No one outside the church would complain when we say that Jesus was human. And so we do not, in our well-meaning evangelical piety, tend to spend a lot of time thinking about the humanity of Jesus. But that is to our loss. It weakens our resolve, diminishes our strength, puts a distance between us and the help that Jesus can provide. Jesus was a man. He experienced what you Experience. He is tempted in every way as we are, though without sin. He was weak as we are weak. He experienced tiredness and he experienced betrayal. He knew what it was like to have one of his most intimate friends betray him. He knows what it is like to give his heart to someone, have them reject it. He just washed Judas' feet. That's an intimate gesture, if ever there was one. It's a serving gesture. He'd offered himself to Judas. Receive me, and you'll receive the one who sent me. In a moment, he will even give him a piece of bread from his own hand around the table at the Last Supper. They were close. They had lived life together. They had shared ministry together. Judas 
knew Jesus. He'd seen him pray. He'd heard him preach. He had a privilege beyond which any great prophet before him had ever had. And beyond that which any of us have ever had, though knowing Jesus spiritually today, Jesus teaches is greater still somehow. And yet Judas rejected him. Jesus has experienced that pain. Now we can sometimes think that if we are really spiritual, if we love enough, we will not be rejected or betrayed. I'm I'm afraid that's just not true. Jesus loved enough and more than enough. He ministered well enough and more than enough. He was moral enough and more than enough, and yet he was betrayed. And the reason why John tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit is so that if we experience the pain and trouble of rejection and betrayal, we will know that we have a Savior we can go to to help us in our time of need. You see, what happens when someone rejects us is that we fear that God himself has rejected us. How could that have happened if God loves us and wants us but here is Jesus God's own son rejected by Judas it shows us that the one we worship is not only sort of distant and great and mighty he's human and troubled by betrayal and knows exactly what you're going through Yes, we can sing, you know, our God is an awesome God, or that as he speaks, a hundred billion galaxies are born, or hail the power of Jesus' name. Oh, yes, good, but Jesus was also troubled in spirit. And that means he can help us when we are troubled in spirit too. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was made like us in every way so that he can help us when we are tempted, when we are troubled, when we are rejected, when we are betrayed. He really does feel your pain. And he can help you move on from it as well, heal your pain. But, but, but that requires not just first this focus on Jesus' humanity, but also second, facing up to the betrayal of Judas. So the second move in the story focuses now on Judas. Look down with me at verses 22 to 27. I'll just read it out for you again. It's, it's really quite remarkable. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So the story continues. And now it's focusing on Judas. There they are lying on couches on low 
mats sort of next to each other, leaning in towards the middle of the table in the way that they, they, they ate in those days. And one of the disciples, almost certainly John, the author of this book, is asked by Peter to find out who Jesus is talking about when he says one of them is going to betray him. And John leans back against Jesus and says, Lord, who is it? A kind of conversation off to the side. And Jesus tells John it's going to be the one I will give this piece of bread to after I've dipped it. Dipped it perhaps meaning dipped in the wine at the Last Supper. Most of the other disciples did not, it seems, hear this conversation to the side. Otherwise, presumably, they would have intervened and stopped Judas. But John later tells them what was recorded here. And Jesus gave the piece of bread to Judas who took it. Jesus, Judas then made his decision to betray Jesus. Judas had, I think, unlike the others, heard Jesus say that he was going to give the piece of bread to the one who would betray him. And Judas chose to take that piece of bread to become that betrayer. And Satan entered into him. There's mystery here. How does that work? What's that? There's mystery here. But what it shows us is that Satan is real, not to be played with. A human can so open up his mind and heart to the devil that in the end his personality becomes dominated by evil. So Jesus says, whatever you're about to do, do quickly. Better, of course, not to do any evil at all. But if someone is set to do some evil, there's, there's, there's no improvement by delay. Just get on with it then, says Jesus. What can we learn from Judas? Perhaps three lessons. First, it's never too late. Perhaps you have betrayed someone. Perhaps you feel as if you've let God down with something you have done. Perhaps you have that self-talk going on in your mind all the time, saying to yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm never going to be good enough, I'm never going to be clever enough, and they're never going to want me, I'm, I'm never a part of this. That all the time in your mind, remember, will you, that the story of Judas is followed soon by the story of Peter. Peter also denied Jesus, but the difference is that Peter repented. I I think even at this moment, as Judas becomes the betrayer, grace is being offered to him. After all, Judas takes the bread and the wine at the Last Supper. He's sitting around the communion table. Yes, he opens himself up to evil, but how different would the end of the story have been if he had repented? I once had a a friend who uh, knew Bono of uh, U2 fame. And this friend and I went on a trip to North Africa together. And I discovered that my new friend had once been actually a part of the IRA, a terrorist organization in Ireland. He didn't tell me what he'd done, but you, you, you could tell it had been serious. But then he came come to Christ. And he got involved with the same church that Bono was attending at the time. He had stories about watching Bono strum the guitar at the back of the church. It must have been amazing. There's my friend, IRA background, come to Christ, 
Now, there were consequences to what he had done, to my friend's sin. But even what he had done as a terrorist did not mean it was too late, for he repented. If you've done something terrible, don't make Judas's mistake. Repent. Accept the consequences. Find accountability. Start again. It's never too late if you repent. But the second lesson, I think, is that it's always a danger. We can sometimes naively think that if we construct the perfect team or build a, a healthy church or ministry or we have just the right kind of friendship group around us, we'll never have any Judases. What nonsense. Jesus was the perfect leader. He knew how teams worked and team dynamics. He led his fellowship brilliantly. And even Jesus had a Judas sitting right next to him. And if that happened to Jesus, it can happen to you. Even if you do the best job possible, even if you're the nicest you can possibly be to all your friends and and construct all the right kind of relationship patterns, it can still happen to you. Even if our church is really healthy, We can still have people who reject what we offer and do things that are meant to damage and betray. Don't be naive. It's always a danger. Don't beat yourself up when it happens to you. Jesus was betrayed. It's not because Jesus did anything wrong. Now that does not mean that every team or every friendship group has to have a Judas. Certainly not. There are plenty of examples of ministry teams or churches which go for years without anyone being a Judas. That doesn't mean that, but it does mean it's always a danger. This is a hospital for sinners, after all. It's a danger for each of us. Doesn't the Bible say the devil prowls around like a hungry lion looking for someone to, uh, to devour? Resist him and he will flee from you. It's never too late. It's always a danger. And the third lesson I think we learn from Judas is it's never a waste. How tempting it is to think when something like this happens to you that it's all a waste of time. What a waste of effort or what a waste of energy to invest all that time in Judas. Yes, Judas betrayed Jesus. But even that was used by God to accomplish his plan of salvation. So when someone betrays you, strangely, somehow, that too is part of God's plan. That may not mean the pain goes away immediately or ever in this life altogether. For sure, if someone has deeply wounded you in the past, God can heal that pain and sometimes does heal that pain in people's lives. But but sometimes people carry those kind of scars throughout all of their lives. But what we do know is that God will use it for his purpose. There is a plan, there is a point, there is a purpose. And even betrayal, even someone who was a Judas to you, can be used by God for his glory and for your good. 
So the first movement of the story focuses on Jesus' humanity to show us that he can help us in our humanity. He, he understands what we're feeling. He, he can come alongside and genuinely empathize and be a part of our experience. The second movement of the story focuses on the astonishing betrayal of Judas to show us it's never too late. It's always a danger and it's never a waste. But the third movement of this extraordinary story focuses on the darkness of the night. Look at verses 28 to 30 as we come towards the end of the passage. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So here we are, we're now focusing on the sort of atmosphere of what's going on, the night. Everyone is wondering what is happening. They, they haven't heard what Jesus said uh, to John, so they think maybe he's leaving to buy something for the feast or give something to the poor, and now John says, deliberately, it was night. Why does he tell us that? I think... For three reasons. Partly because it was night. So John is describing what actually took place. It was night. This event is a historical fact. This is when it happened. It happened at night. Partly why John says it. Partly, though, I think John says it was night because night, in, in John's way of writing, he uses all these symbolism, all these picture language. Night symbolizes the spiritual darkness of what Judas is doing, of course. And John loves to use this kind of imagery, light, darkness. And so the Bible actually does have artistic symbolism. It, it's, it's embedded in, in the literature of the Bible, the Psalms, John. And, and this night inspires a sort of creative uh, imagination of, of, of what evil is like. There's something in this image of night that speaks to our need for answers to evil. Perhaps most famously in, uh, in the book by Elie Wiesel about his experience of the Nazi Holocaust, a book he simply called night so John says it was night partly for historical actually partly for symbolism that we can enter into the drama of this moment the, the lights go out it's night it's dark he wants us to see that and feel that but most of all I think to express the spiritual reality it's not just a historical fact, and it's not just symbolism. There's a spiritual reality here. And what is that spiritual reality? Well, of course, it's that Jesus was betrayed, but he was betrayed, and that by us. You know, you know we think of all sorts of ways of trying to grasp the cross and its, cross and its, and its meaning and its significance for our lives today. Often we associate it with someone giving their life for another person. So, for instance, you know, a story on the news in the last uh, little while of a, of a young father who gave his life for his son. They were walking down the sidewalk. The son was disabled. Suddenly a car came too fast around a bend, lost control, headed right for the two of them. At that moment, the father had a choice to make. Would he save himself and let his disabled son, unable to move quick enough, die? Or would he push his son out of the way and the father himself would die instead? 
Love made that choice quickly. The father pushed his disabled son out of the way of the car, saved the life of his child, and he himself took the full force of that out-of-control car and was killed instantly. Now that is something of what the cross is like. It is like a father giving his life for his son, a husband dying for his wife, a soldier paying the ultimate sacrifice. Yes, it's something like that, but it's much more than that too. Jesus did not die for the innocent victim. He did not die for a disabled child who had done nothing wrong to be run over by a car. He he died for us. You will never understand. You will never appreciate You will never be moved to tears by the cross unless you grasp the full depth of the darkness of your night. You know, one of the signs of someone growing up spiritually is to begin move past these trite and simplistic understandings of Christianity. Oh, I'm glad that Jesus died. How good that is to, to realize the full amazing nature of who Jesus is divinity and humanity, his majesty, to begin to grasp that and at the same time to realize the stark reality of who we are. It was night. And if you don't get that, you're just going to be bored. You're just going to go through the motions. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. He did a lot more than that. You're just going to sit there and yawn when we sing songs about how great Jesus is. You think, well, he's great and I'm not too bad either. You won't have any emotional engagement or spiritual grasping or intellectual mind-blown sensation. You won't want to read more books about God or the cross. You won't want to engage with who he is and think about it and study the Bible and get together in groups and go, I want to find out how great this person is because I know who I am. You won't have any of that until you see and understand it was, it, was, it was night. It was your night. He was betrayed. And he died for the betrayers like you and me. Jesus did not nobly give his life for the pure and innocent people who had done nothing wrong. That's a strong story. It's a sweet story. It's a good story, but it is not the good news. Jesus gave his life even though he was betrayed, even though, as we will see when we come to that part of the story in a week or so, he was denied by Peter too. He was stabbed in the back. The bread that he gave was eaten. It was taken. The body that was broken was broken by the ones for whom it was broken. I I don't think we think it was, night. Not really. We're far too nice, aren't we? I think we think it was midday. I think we think the sun was shining. I think we think it was wonderful that he died for us. But I don't think we see in our faces the face of a Judas or a Peter 
who denied him. I don't think we look on the one who was betrayed. I think we look on the one who's quite a good example of of sacrificing for other people, just like we do ourselves, really. And therefore, I think we think it was sad. Such a good man. He died. How sad. Uh, Last week, I mentioned that one of my heroes as a Christian leader was John Stott. Another hero to me is uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. His daughter was uh, actually in the church where I was a pastor in Cambridge in England. Lloyd-Jones is sometimes called the greatest preacher of the 20th century for good reason. He had remarkable speaking oratory and gift with words. He He trained as a medical doctor. He got to the right, the top of his profession very early on. He was a brilliant man. And then he felt God's call to ministry, eventually spending decades faithfully preaching in a church called Westminster Chapel in London. Towards the end of his life, when Lloyd-Jones was dying, his medical doctor came to him to inquire whether there was anything that he could do to make Lloyd-Jones more comfortable. At this point, the great man was struggling to speak at all. Imagine some of those, those gifts, that ease with communication, unable to speak. Hardly at all. He was certainly troubled. And uh, his doctor said something to him in effect, something like this, you know, oh, can, can I give you something now that you are so old and sad? And it is said that Lloyd-Jones, who knew the divinity and humanity of Jesus, who knew the meaning of the cross as God paying the penalty we deserved in the sin of our night, who knew that Jesus rose again from the dead, who knew that Jesus would help him in the greatest moment of his own trouble when his body was finally betraying him. It is said that Lloyd-Jones at that moment stared at the doctor and with all his remaining strength managed to gargle out, Not sad. Not sad. It is not sad. It is gloriously joyful. It is stunningly worshipful. It is mind-blowingly, heart-wrenchingly, gut-bustingly, out of this world, good, joyful, praiseful. For the story of Jesus' betrayal can release you from the wounds of your betrayal because at the cross, Jesus took the dark night of your worst betrayal that you might have light and life. He went into your night so that you can walk in the light. And when you get that, when you get both who Jesus is and also who you are in increasing worshipful appreciation then you begin to find purpose and life and joy and motivation and action look at it like this 
In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there's a moment when Sam finds himself all alone and in the dark. He's in a cave. There's a hideous, many-eyed, hobbit-eating, evil-legged monster around the corner ready to get Sam. There are orcs and other nameless enemies all around Sam. He is deep within Sauron's lair, the, the, Sauron, the great devil-like figure in the Lord of the Rings. What, what can Sam do? It was night. Gollum, the strange muttering creature that he and his friend Frodo have been relying upon to guide them, has betrayed them completely and utterly. Frodo, he now, his friend, he thinks is dead, and Sam, Sam, small Sam, betrayed Sam, mistaken Sam, alone, dark night. And then he remembers a gift that he was given, a light for when all other lights go out. It's Galadriel's file, a magical glass that contains light from the stars that no amount of darkness could ever put out. Maybe you are in darkness. Maybe you have been betrayed. Maybe it is night. Well, yes, see that night, but then also see Jesus. In the darkness, he shines. In the night, he is the star, the light that cannot be put out and trust him. You say, what what difference is that going to make? At the root of all the wounds that betrayal inflicts is the breaking of trust. You feel like you cannot trust again. You do not know who to trust again. Here is one you can trust. He will guide you. He will keep you. He will provide for you. He is your light. Arise. He is a light for when all other lights go out, even in the night. We're going to stand now to sing. Our last hymn reflects some of the feelings of what we've been thinking about together. It's right there at the back of your worship folder. You can see it. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. That's part of what you feel when you feel in the dark. Child of weakness. We feel like that sometimes. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. It's a well-known old hymn. Let's stand together and sing it. And as we stand, while we're standing, I'll pray for us. And then uh, we'll just go right into the hymn. So let's, let's pray as we stand. Our Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you that you did take our night. We thank you, Lord, that in that darkness, there you are shining a light that cannot be put out, a light for when all other lights go out. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be naive 
We pray, Lord, that though we would be trusting in you, would you come and heal us from our brokenness and set us on fire to serve you, for you paid it all. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.